love for you to take God's word and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 this morning. And if you're willing and able, we will stand for the reading of God's word out of, out of reverence for it. We'll take our reading this morning from verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And uh, in some sense, the uh, Spirit of God this morning writes to us. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again just to praise you and to thank you for your gospel. Father, we thank you for who you are and all that you've accomplished on our behalf in your son Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the power of the Spirit who is able to take the sword of the Spirit and to make dead men live. Father, to make blind men see, to make deaf men hear. Father, to make lame men stand, to heal the disease, Father, and to raise the dead. We recognize that um, there is a sense in which we're all like that. Come into the world, Father, uh, just bent towards sin. Father, um, not trapped in it in a way that, um, that we're slaves without coercion, or slaves of coercion, Father, but um, we love darkness rather than light. Our sinners and rebels against the holy God at enmity towards Him, Father, um, not coming because we don't want to. Um, and Your Son, Jesus Christ, enters into the world so humbly, so wonderfully, so graciously, so purely, uh, so hopefully, Father, so compassionately, and uh, reaches down into the depths of the sea and pulls dead men out and makes them live. <laughs> God, um, you've established your kingdom through your son. There's no doubt about that. Um, those before him spoke of his coming. Those after can't shut up. Um, that's us this morning, Father. Just um, reveling in the glory and the majesty of your son, Father, who takes men who hate you and makes them lovers of God. Uh, Father, we pray that we could just give you some honor and glory this morning that is due your name. Father, we pray that you'd help us to come faithfully to the text, faithfully to the fellowship, Father, faithfully in prayer, and um, offer you something this morning that is uh, holy and due to you, Father. God, help us not to exalt ourselves, our our own methodology, our own philosophies, um, or our own wisdom, Father. Um, we recognize that the greatest wisdom of men is folly before God. So, Father, we pray that we would just return to you what is already and rightfully yours. 
from our worship. And we pray that we would do it in a way that is honoring to you according to your word. So govern our spirits this morning. Father, um, would you minister to us through your spirit in a mighty way? God, would you um, uplift the downcast and downtrodden saint this morning? Father, would you, by your spirit, raise the dead sinner? Um, God, it would be a wonderful uh, privilege to usher in a newborn babe into the kingdom of God this morning, Father, just to be the uh, nursing midwife um, who stands by and watches your glorious grace be extended to another sinner, undeserving sinner. God, um, if nothing else, would you make us all like your son, more like your son this morning? May we leave um, closer to Christ than what we came. Would you use this Lord's Day this time, Father? Help us just stay our minds on you and on your word for a few minutes, God, uh, as we peek and peer into the glories of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We come to... 2 Corinthians chapter number 8, and most of you will recognize that this is um, not the general text that we come to. We've been trekking through the book of Mark, but occasionally the Lord will compel to take us somewhere else, and uh, that's where we are this morning. Here we find the Apostle Paul exhorting, encouraging, and instructing the saints at Corinth, particularly in relationship um, to their giving, and that's what I want to do uh, this morning. I'm sure that I've broken some cardinal rule or some 11th commandment in some church to take the Christmas service, the one previous to it, and uh, not only uh, preach on giving, but to take that service and, and preach on giving. Honestly, in the entire life of this church, I don't believe I've devoted an entire service or an entire sermon to the topic of, of giving. I don't believe I've ever preached on it. It's not something that I generally harp on before the offering. We love to take just a minute or two to just kind of reorient our hearts and minds and thinking into the purposes of giving. Um, but I'm not a prosperity preacher. I'm, I'm not interested in your wallets. Um, I don't think the Apostle Paul was either. I think he was interested in the, the hearts of men. Um, and as I thought this morning, or uh, throughout the week, um, I studied multiple texts. I almost preached the book of Mark as well. I almost just went with the exposition. Uh, many of you know that I struggle some days with holiday texts. I always love it after I do it, but it almost some days it sounds cliche to pull Isaiah chapter 9 out or take Luke. And It's always a glorious time, though. I'm not discounting that, but sometimes I struggle. So I actually studied to preach Mark chapter number 8 and carry on. Uh, but then the Lord... Um, in some way compelled me to come to Second Corinthians. I'm not 100% sure why I landed there, but nevertheless I, I landed. As I thought and I, I began to consider uh, the Christmas season and um, in some way to compel us during this season, some way to help us and instruct us and encourage us um, in the midst of the season and how Christians ought to in some way carry themselves. As I went to the book of Mark, um, yeah, and the, these sermons will probably intermingle one with another, and you'll hear two or three this morning, um, as that's the way my thinking works. I almost preached it in a, in a Christmas fashion because I believe that it, it deals with that. And it deals with the very text that we're um, going to spend a little time in this morning. Because as I, I delineated and I just, I, I thought and I just meditated upon 
uh, Mark chapter number 8 in that uh, phrase in verse number 35 where he says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Man, what a, what a, a text that just peers into the heart and the soul of the natural man and calls him um, to examine himself and the very reason for which um, he exists. And as I meditated upon particularly that verse this week and tried to expound it and tried to apply it to our lives and it crossed over to 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 in total contrast of the world and Christianity or uh, the world and Christ. Um, The term soul there in or life, you may have a translation that says life, whoever um, tries to save his life, whoever tries to save his soul um, is, is a very interesting term. It talks about the inner man. It talks about the man of uh, essentially as who he is coming into the world. It's that part um, that is eternal. It's that part that um, never dies. And of course, we know that a man can't save his own soul. Um, we understand that. We know that uh, from a biblical perspective, there is nothing, no amount of doing, no amount of skill, no amount of intellect, no amount of wisdom, no amount of treachery, no amount of deceit, no amount of power uh, that man can contain or muster up um, that could ever save his soul. Um, but I think the text leans more towards um, the man's pursuit in trying to save his own soul and the way that um, he generally does that. Psalm chapter 49, you don't need to turn there. But in verse number 5, I think, gives us a little uh, clue into exactly the nature of man and maybe what Jesus there is um, expounding upon. But in Psalm chapter number 49, you read these words in verse number 5. Why should I fear in the days of evil when uh, the iniquity of my heel surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother. Uh, nor give to God a ransom for him. No man, and this is what he's saying. He said, you know, everybody's trusting in riches. Everybody's trusting in wealth. And, that, and they need to know that, that none of that can redeem a soul. None of it can buy anyone out of hell. Uh, there's no such thing as purgatory. Uh, if that's what you're banking on after uh, life, after death, then you're going to come up short. Uh, there's no second chances. There's nothing. There's no buying people out of heaven, uh, uh, buying people into heaven and out of hell. And he goes on, he says, for the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever. And then he should continue to live eternally. That he should live, continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die. Likewise the fool and senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their inner dwelling, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. The psalm is very emphatic. It teaches that earthly advantages are not a reliable source to secure permanent happiness in this life or the next. As prosperous as men may be for a time, every man's ultimate destiny outside of uh, the true God, outside of Christ, um, is ruined without God. Riches don't last forever. Men leave their houses to others. And I think it's, uh, it's one of the, uh, it's either Job or Ecclesiastes that, you know, pretty much uh, it talks of the folly, I believe it's Ecclesiastes, where he speaks of the folly of men uh, who even wise men leave their houses and their wealth to fools. You know, that's the culmination of your wealth. 
You can go to Luke chapter 12 and verse 19 and reach, uh, read of a rich man who stores up his riches and buys barns and barns and bigger barns and, and uh, God would look at him and say, you fool, uh, tonight your soul is required of thee. And then he um, speaks of the riches of eternity and how those riches aren't found in things. And this is exactly what we see in life. This is the natural man. You don't have to go to Job or Ecclesiastes. You don't have to run to the Psalms. You don't even need to go to Luke. Um, to naturally know that this is true of human life. You have a soul. You live in context of men with souls. And it's very easy to see, not, if not in, within your own soul, in a former life, or even struggling with the nature of yourself as you try to die to that self and to put on Christ, um, that there is a tendency of man um, to seek to save his own life and to seek security and satisfaction and contentment and significance by pursuing the things of the world. And if, you want a, and if you want a premier season and time in which that is illustrated probably throughout American culture more than any other, welcome to the Christmas season. A time in which men and women and children and us, if we're not careful, um, love to seek contentment, satisfaction, security, um, in wealth, in things, in materials, in possessions. And this is the season of buying barns and barns and bigger and bigger barns. Of storing up earthly treasures here and now. Uh, not recognizing the foolish nature of that. We have the secular idea of salvation. Um, in which man overtly places himself at the helm of the ship as his savior. This is, way, this is man's way of reaching for those things that God um, can only give as he tries to achieve his own contentment, satisfaction, and security in uh, this world. Jesus is emphatic, though, in Mark. Whoever's like this, whoever wishes to do that, um, is in danger of losing his soul, of losing it. And the term losing there means to ruin. It means to destroy. It could simply mean to, to lose, but it also often speaks of the perishing um, of the pit, the great abyss. And that's the therein lies a great danger in affluence. Therein lies a great danger in comfort. Therein lies a great danger in pleasure. Therein lies the great danger of the idolatry of American culture um, in which we bow down often days before self, seeking affluence and comfort and pleasure above all, all other things. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17, I believe it is, and I'm going to paraphrase it um, as I've quoted in previous days, where he speaks of the mind of the Gentile being locked in the patterns of this world and the darkness of their mind. And he lists a whole host of sins. And then he turns the table and he says, but ye have not so learned Christ. And this is not the way Christ carried himself in the mind and the darkness and the futile, uh, futility of the mind of the Gentiles who give themselves over to meaningless, treasureless treasures, trinkets and toys uh, when compared to the glories and the majesties of God in Christ through his his spirit. I believe it was C.S. Lewis uh, who gave an illustration um, uh, speaking of man's folly. He said that most days we are like 
little boys and girls ignorantly playing with mud pies um, in the sand. Uh, when God offers us a holiday at the beach uh, to spend, and here we are, uh, entertaining ourselves when there's an offer of eternal life and the glories and the majesties that we're little boys and little girls ignorantly thinking we have the world and when there's so much more out there, we just have to lift up our eyes and see. Um, Christmas time, this season, should be something, a time, a season in which Christians glory in a door swung wide open um, to exemplify Christ in singularly Christ-like attitudes and activities such as gracious, joy-filled, generous, willful giving. Christians are the only ones that really, truly, those who know Christ, those that have been regenerate, those who have been given new life in Christ, who have upon them the Spirit of God, um, are the only ones that have a true monopoly on this field. And that is why Paul begins the way that he begins here. He begins a very detailed theology on Christian giving. And he does it not by pressing into their consciences the necessity of duty. Not by laying upon their shoulders the burden of an apostolic commandment. Even later on, he's actually going to say, I could have commanded you in different places, but I didn't do that. I'm reminded of Philemon, as in Philemon, he says, I can lay upon you commandment, but I, I, I don't want to do that. I want to appeal to you by love, by, the, by, the, by virtue of Christ, that you may do it openly and willfully. So he doesn't, he doesn't engage the conversation like that. Not by laying upon their shoulders a burden of apostolic commandment. Not by, not by enforcing it or telling them that they must do that. Although Paul, the apostle, um, had every right to do that. He says, it's my right to command you to do this. But I'm not going to do that. You know, um, He doesn't do it by manipulative guilting them into participation. He's not crafty. He's not um, deceitful. He's not in it for the prosperity, the health, and the wealth of um, of the church or, or, or of his own pocketbook. Um, he's not trying to steal. He's not uh, doing it for greedy, uh, filthy lucre or for uh, glorious gain on his own part or even for um, the church. Um, he sees a great need in the saints at Jerusalem. And he writes unto Corinth and he tells them to encourage and to edify and to instruct them in the way that they should give. Um, he begins instead by informing them of a concrete example of the grace of God at work as evidenced by the generosity of the churches of Macedonia. I'll give you just a few observations that I hope this morning will help you as we come upon in a few days, you know, the greatest, uh, quote-unquote, uh, that's from a cultural perspective, you know, the greatest um, holiday of our American culture. You shouldn't abandon Christmas. I don't believe that. Uh, you know, there's some uh, reformed and some conservative and some even biblical. You know, who say to abandon it altogether. I'm not taking that position. I'm not that puritanical or quite that um, uh, super reformed. Um, I believe that a Christian can carry himself very well, and it's a great opportunity to exemplify the attitude and the attributes of Christ as he puts on Christ throughout the season. Uh, but this should also be. Um, um, this should also be exemplary of the Christian life throughout all the year. 
It should just seem all we have now is a door wide open to walk through. Uh, but we should be seeking out opportunities to generously, graciously, willfully participate um, in the giving and the upholding of the saints all throughout the year as well as in our communities. I want to give you just a few observations this morning concerning the Macedonians giving. That's the, church that he, the churches that he refers to here, um, who's by example Paul uses to stir up the Corinthians in their giving. And I pray that it also stirs us up this morning um, as we think and meditate upon um, this letter to Corinth and this, essentially this word to us. Number one, that the motivating source of Christian giving is solely the grace of God. That's what he says in verse number one. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. And it's almost like a sandwich. Uh, you could say that this is bread number one. And he finishes it like this in verse number nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, our, for your sakes he became poor, that, through, that you through his poverty might become rich. And what we see all throughout the apostles' letters and instruction and here in chapters 8 and 9, one of the greatest, or if not the most extensive theological treatise on uh, Christian giving um, is sourced and founded. Um, again, not in coercion, not in manipulation, not in deceit, not in craftiness, not even in overt commandment from apostolic authority. It is simply rooted in the grace of God. That the Apostle Paul says that you and I should give and that it should be the attribute and the attitude and the activity of the Christian, um, not by any of those things, but simply because God has extended grace to us. Paul seeks to stir and exhort our minds as well as the Corinthians to sacrificial giving, to faithful giving, to the saints in Jerusalem. He desires to raise their affections, to raise the people of God's affections, in whom, by the way, they probably had never met before. That the grace of God gives us a love for the community of faith and to those who we have a common life with, who common life blood flow through. That God, when He regenerates and gives new life and babies are born into the family of God and we take upon ourselves the very nature of God. Um, that God places in us as He comes in us and dwells with us and alongside us and urges us. Um, he gives us a love for others um, because He's given us a love for God. And that's what you see exemplified here. You see them loving one another. Why? Because they've experienced the love of God, right? Uh, the Gospels are uh, very emphatic. The two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor, how love them as yourself. And you'll even see an argument in this passage um, of fellowship and giving of this, this um, uh, what you would find in the, the book of Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4, where it speaks of um, uh, koinonia, our fellowship, that there's this, this fellowshipping around the sacrifice and the giving of the saints as they come together with common life. That there's a blood flowing through their veins particularly that is common among all the churches and among all the people of God. That this lifeblood is the blood of Jesus Christ. And the power of the Spirit, thus when Jesus enters into a soul and gives him new life, as he loves God, he has a newfound love for particularly his brethren. 
and for those that are all around him. They share in the love of Christ for the bride and for the world. Um, And that's exactly what you see. Even to those whom they have not met. They hear of it and they burn with compassion as Christ does often when he sees his sheep. He leads with that foundation, the grace of God. He ends with that foundation, the grace of God. And what you see all throughout this passage, and I think in chapter 8 and 9, is what you see, I think no less than 12 times, you see some form of the term grace. Some form of the term favor there that, um, that they found with God. And thus it should provoke um, them to giving when they see the saints in trouble. He says, we seek to make known to you not the crippling poverty of the saints, not your spiritual obligation to supply the need of the brethren, not laws, not duties, not commands, no precepts. Now we wish you to we wish to remind you of the overwhelming grace that God has poured out not only upon you but upon all the churches of Macedonia. And we want you to see that grace that He's extended to them and that grace that possesses them. Um, and that should be why you give. Um, I don't think that we often understand that. Um, you know, one, one, great, uh, one great illustration of that is, is that uh, in many churches, I don't believe this one, I praise God for that, it's only His Word. You know, you, many, and I, and I talk to Christians, and I talk to people that I work with and things like that, and they hate a sermon series on giving. They hate it, man. You know, uh, some of them do, and I was there in former days, you know. Why? Because the religious establishment, not only in our day, but in, the, in, in former days, has always been, um, has always had a sect of, of Christianity, of any religion that is just money-grubbing. Uh, they do it for filthy lucre, and they do it for gain. And that's why there's so many exhortations to pastors, so many exhortations to the church, so many exhortations to me. You know, Peter, uh, going through that book, he's, you know, you need to lead by example, not, uh, not, not, not uh, uh, lording over, and you need to do it not uh, uh, willingly, but not, not for filthy lucre. Like, you're not in it, uh, Damon, you're not in it, Paul, you're not in it, Peter, you're not in it, pastor, you're not in it, preacher, for, for the money. Why? Because so many are. So many are. And so many... Christians look at that and they, they, they have a foul taste in their mouth um, because of the, the, uh, the greediness of many men who stand and they abuse the bride of Christ um, for their own glory and their own gain and to fill their own wallet. So in some sense, I, I, I totally sympathize with the, uh, with the disdain of hearing another sermon or another series on giving. But at the same time, if you were to mention a series on grace, everyone would eat it up. You know, like we do. Like, uh, there's going to be a sermon series eight weeks long on grace, man. Bring it on, you know. And that's universal across the board. I, I'm going to hear about the free and unmerited grace of God bestowed upon undeserving sinners. I, we, we all love to hear about grace. We love to hear about Christ, especially during the winter months. We want, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And there seems to be in many people's thinking a stark contrast in reaction between these two things. And that tells us a lot about a person. Why? Because those things are not inherently contrast, but inherently the same thing, that grace in and of itself is a, is a gift. It, it, it is the very foundation of all giving, that if we're going to welcome grace in a sermon series on grace or teaching on grace or a conversation on grace, then giving is an inevitable consequence of that. That as we receive the gift of God, um, that it is not a personal and a private gift. It is a gift that is given and it brings us into communion and union with Christ, but also into union and communion with others. 
It brings us in this um, unbreakable bond in which now that the grace that has been extended to us must be extended to others as Christ changes our souls. Paul is genius here. His starting point is a joyful, willing, generous, and sacrificial giving. And he begins it with God who is joyful, willing, generous, and sacrificial. That this is who you are to be because this is who God is. That God loves, one pastor said, I read this week, that God loves a cheerful giver because God is a cheerful giver. He loves when His image is exemplified and illustrated to a lost and a dying world by the love that they have for that world, but also for the saints, those whom God has brought them into fellowship with. That there is an undying love that He puts into the heart and mind of a believer and that is exemplified and illustrated in the life in the church. And that's exactly what he says, I think, in verse number 8. He says, I speak not by commandment. I'm not telling you, I'm not overtly commanding you to do this, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. You know, that the test of your love um, is, 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 is um, exemplified. I mean, the fact that you are so joyfully willing to, to give and to sacrifice, not only um, by, by what you have, but going above and beyond that in the sacrifice. Why? Because of the great love that you have um, for the saints. The pinnacle of God's grace is that which stands as the motivating source of faithful Christian giving. And that indescribable gift of our Lord and Savior who renounced all the riches of heavenly glory and embrace the poverty of life and death as a human being. Why? So that we who were destitute could be enriched with the very righteousness and the riches of God Himself. That's verse number 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor. Why, Paul? That you, through His poverty, might become rich. That his giving, this giving was, was motivated and driven by gospel grace. Paul appeals to the most supreme and purest motivation for generosity, the abounding grace of our Lord, that in His preexistent and eternal glory, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was in possession of immeasurable spiritual riches, whose wealth words will never be able to describe. All the volumes in all the world can never contain it. Nevertheless, he voluntarily and even sacrificially renounced all those riches and embraced the poverty of life, death as a human. Why? So that those who are destitute of God's favor and blessing could be enriched in the very righteousness and wealth of God Himself. If people of God know this grace and have personally drank and feasted upon the reality of Christ, then that same grace will be, should be cultivated um, in them and exemplified in the life that we live. And you know that, right? If you've experienced the reality of Christ and His gospel, you've if you've experienced regeneration and blessing of new birth and the, the beauty of sight and miraculous hearing and the righteousness of Christ, and you felt the weight of, of the burden of sin lifted from you and the sins forgiven, the comfort of the, the, the paraclete, the, the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying ministry of the indwelling of the Spirit of God, the sweetness of daily communion and the horrors of sin driving a wedge between that. And if that's you, today then then people of god church christ bible church dear brethren you know the grace of god 
And then we too are to be gracious. That particularly that he was rich, yet he became poor. Man, like you could spend volumes on that, and people have, right? And that term there, um, being rich, it speaks of uh, something that he always was. It's a present participle. It's, a, it's an ongoing, continuous, active activity. That this is what he was. It's inherent in him. I mean, when you get to the fact that he became poor, this is a different verb tense. It speaks of, um, of, a, of a, a past uh, time in which he became. It was something that he entered into. That his poverty, that, that, that his riches never had a beginning. It was always existent, self-sufficient. They were always there. I mean, it was part of who he was, his nature, his character. I mean, it was something that he contained because of who he was. But he willingly took upon himself at some point in time, 2,000 years ago, put upon himself a poverty, a self-inflicted, willful, joyful poverty um, as he came. As he came. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The term being speaks of existing. That he existing as God throughout all of eternity at all times. John 1.1 1, 1 speaks of him in the beginning. That the beginning, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That the God, the Son was fully God in the beginning existing in the richness of equality with God. That He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. Who being the brightness of His eternal glory and the express image of His person, um, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3. That Jesus Christ was the creator of all things, Colossians 1.16. And the sustainer of those. That in Him all things consist. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Indeed, um, in heaven, in the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that is in it. Job 41, the Father says, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything in heaven is mine. John 17, 5 speaks of the glory that the Son had with the Father even before the foundation of the world was ever laid. In Isaiah 6, I believe that we see God in Christ, high and holy and lifted up. And it is Christ Himself in His pre-incarnate state um, in which causes even the angels in their utter perfection to shadow themselves under their wing because they sit in before His glory. No wonder... Isaiah acts the way that he does. If angels act this way in their utter perfection, how much more unworthy are my lips to praise him? That he has a richness that has always existed in his divine being and his possessions, in who he is and what he owns, but also in his relationship. That before the world began, Luke tells us, and even now, that there was a, a relationship that existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is, that is not, that, 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 and nothing else is, impar- is paramount to. That all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows uh, no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one who whom, whom the Son desires to reveal Him. There's a unique knowledge and communion within the Godhead, um, and it always has been. And this is the one who was rich in all those areas, and he becomes poor. Becomes poor. And the question arises, how could anyone with such splendor and unchangeable character condescend to such a place that he could be rightly called? Like, did Paul's right? Like, he became poor. If the Spirit of God is right, then he became poor. Herein is the matchless weight and the glory of the incarnation. Welcome to Isaiah 9. To unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. He's given to you a poor, 
He's rich with poverty now. Herein is the incarnation. Herein is the essence of Christmas. Right? Philippians 2, he empties himself. Um, he does not cease to be God. He remains God in the fullness of the Godhead bodily is what the Scripture tells us. He did not become poor by ceasing to be God. But he came poor by becoming a man. And there's, there is a sense in which it's not a, a, a poverty in, the, in a subtracting sense, although it is. But in addition, he becomes in some sense more than what he was as he takes upon himself the form of a human. He does so without shedding his divine nature, though. He takes upon a human nature and he sets aside certain things not essential to his role as God, but essential to his role as being the Savior of all mankind. So what's his poverty? Even though he had every right to continue in unlimited power and authority, to radiate the very essence of glory and deity, to receive nothing but the exalted worship of all of heaven and all of earth, immune to any material poverty, any pain, any humiliation. Philippians 2 says he did not count that, those riches such that um, he was slavishly held to so much um, that all the world would go to hell without him. But he was willing to sacrifice those things to become a man. Why? For the glory of the Father as well as the good of the nations, particularly man's salvation. Uh, one writer writes this, he alleviated himself of all divine insignia, everything that would signify God in him on the external, uh, from an external perspective, um, he lays aside such that no man would recognize him. He who is rich as and rightful owner is born yet, and rightful owner of all the world, all the heavens and everything that are in them, is, he becomes poor as he's born in a stable. He whose glory fills all the earth and should be worshipped uh, becomes poor as he's made lower than the angels. He who is rich in the fact that not only does he create all things, but he sustains all things and keeps this ball in motion um, becomes poor as he must be sustained by his mother's breast. Uh, the one who knows all things and who is omniscient becomes poor as he does not know that day or that hour in which the Son of Man will come. No one knows but the Father. Um, he who is the one who is rich in the fact that he created the fox with the instinct to find a hole to live and dwell in, birds who have nests, he becomes poor in the fact that he who created the very fox who has a hole and a bird who has a nest finds no, no, no place to lay his head the one who is the bread of life and sustains all men in the wilderness becomes poor as he, as, he, um, as he submits himself to the hungering pains of man. He who is the living water and who offers men a water in which they will never thirst hangs there upon a cross with a parched mouth and understands the pain in which we bear. He who is the truth is the one who becomes poor and allows himself to be slandered. Um, he who is the embodiment of faithfulness um, is tried by a council of his friends, by worms like Pilate, and abandoned by his own friends. The one whom the Father has never been a part of, not even for a moment throughout all of history, who has perfect communion, now becomes poor for a moment in time and history in which the Father turns his face away. Divine love becomes divine wrath. The author of life gives his only life upon the cross the one who is life finds death upon Golgotha. The worshipped becomes the despised. The master becomes the slave. The rich man becomes poor. 
No one has ever been richer than the Son of God, yet no one has ever been as poor. This is what Paul means. This is the essence of grace. Why? So that you might become rich. It was your spiritual poverty that required the surrender of all the riches of heaven. Um, that now the role could be reversed. So that you who was born dead may live. So that you who is an enemy of God might be called his friend. So that you who was rebellious might now be a friend of God and submissive. You who was an idolater might become a worshiper. You who was a curse might be blessed. You who scarred, was scarred by your father Adam might be saved by being in Christ. You who was undeserving might find grace. You who could not see, now you can see. You who could not hear, now you can hear. Now you have ears. You who could not stand, you might stand. You who were once a slave to Satan, now are a slave to Christ and His righteousness. That He became everything that you were so that you, in a sense, might become everything that He is. He became poor. So that you might become rich. Not only was he rich in divine attributes and rich in divine possessions and rich in divine relationships, but he becomes poor. So why? That you might be rich in divine attributes and you might be rich in divine possessions and you might be rich in divine relationships. It was this grace that Paul utilizes to say, like if that's not the reason you're giving, then don't give. You know, that's it. You know, no commandment stands next to that. No craftiness, no deceit, no coercion, no guilt um, stands next to that. If that's not the reason you're giving, then, then why even give? The grace of God is um, that which not merely introduces us to Christianity and brings us into the fold of God, but it is the very source and motivation of all that we are and all that we do and by which we are sustained and strengthened to live out the Christian life. That the life of a true Christian receives um, God. And when he does, he's motivated to live for God and as God. Um, not as a God, but as the divine attributes lead him to this means that the gospel is more than just a get out of hell free card, right? But when the truth of the gospel is, is actually takes root in the heart and life of a believer, um, it's appropriated by faith, um, that it changes our lives and everything that we are and everything that we do. And that's all he's doing is simply reminding them of that. He's not even telling them to give. He's saying, this is who God is. No wonder you're so gracious. It's true in every area of life that grace was the motivating principle for these churches and it should be the motivating principle for us for us and then you see uh, not only that observation but then you see that um, true genuine Christian generosity um, because of that is unhindered by the challenging circumstances we often find ourselves you know and that's exactly what you saw on the cross, right? You saw challenging circumstances that would have stood in the way of Christ coming and giving. And yet He perseveres and rises even above the circumstances. And I commend to you today that that is true of us as, as well. Number two, you see the challenging circumstances. Verse number two says that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty 
abounded in the riches of their liberality. Isn't that amazing? That all the churches during this time were experiencing a great ordeal of persecution. The term there, affliction and difficulty, it literally means to be pressed. It means to feel the pressures of a hostile world. You find the exact same um, term used in places like John 16 where Jesus tells them that they will have tribulation. You see it actually in Acts chapter 11 from the persecution that comes after the stoning of Stephen and they're scattered abroad. Why? Because of the affliction, the pressure that is put upon them by Satan and the world and the flesh and the persecution literally physically and spiritually um, that comes in, in the world. But not only that, you see a, circum- a challenging circumstance of deep poverty. Of deep poverty. That's what he says, right? That in the great trial of affliction, and he's talking about the churches of Macedonia as he's uplifting them. He says, in the great affliction that they were in, and their deep poverty. Their deep poverty. You know, the term there, deep, is a, um, a word that's often used in the New Testament to speak of the depths of the ocean. Uh, Luke chapter 5 and verse number 4, when Jesus refers to the deep, um, or they're casting their nets out into the deep, it speaks of the depths of the ocean, that they're going to fish in the depths. The original term here is used um, in, the, in, the, in the original language. It's actually, um, I think decades ago, um, there was a, a, a contraption that was made so that, that um, divers could go to the depths of the oceans. Um, the term here is bathys. It's actually, um, and they named that device after the word that's used here, bathysphere. That was the name of it. You can go home and Google it. It looks like a little space helmet. Um, and they would, they would soar the depths of the ocean. They would go deeper than, than most men could, that any man could go by himself with his own human flesh. That's the idea here. That there is a, a place that is beyond natural uh, poverty. He's not just talking about somebody who's struggling through life and trying to make the bills. Actually, he says the churches at Macedonia were in extreme abysmal poverty. Rock bottom. The Macedonians were not, an e- were not uh, on easy street, as it were. Um, they weren't giving out of their abundance, as it were. It may very well be that even during their financial struggles, um, it came from the afflictions that they were being oppressed by Rome and other other institutions. As the world placed upon them, the afflictions wrought a, an immeasurable poverty. Um, it's in times like these that one could legitimately say, as I think that Paul could have even kind of alluded to, you know, as they hear about the churches of Macedonia and um, Paul, and they come to Paul, you know, actually what happens here is that um, verse number four. It says, or verse number three, they were freely willing at the end of it. And then verse number four says this, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. You know, it very well could have been that as Paul comes, he doesn't really even mention giving to them. Why? Because he knows the extreme poverty and affliction that they're under. But you know how the churches of Macedonia respond? Paul, like, you can't withhold that blessing from us, nor of them. As Paul looked, or we would look, we may even look at them and say, like, don't worry about that. Focus on yourself. Get yourself out of the affliction. You know, work on raising up your giving and bringing in the funds. Focus on the church. Um, you know, and then there'll be time to give later. You know what the churches of Macedonia said? They said, no, Paul. Paul, with much urgency, we implore you with urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Paul, we've got to have a part in this. Like, you don't have anything to give. Like, we're going to give, you know? We're going to take out of our extreme poverty, not just our abundance, you know? I and mean, then that is so convicting. 
Because I, I look at my own life and I, I, and I think about us as a church and I think about Christianity across the world and I think about American affluence. And most of us, I believe, are relatively generous, right? But I also think that for some of us, that may be because we are relatively well off. Like the nation of America, and we are in the upper echelon of all the world, um, that, that you may think yourself as, as middle class or lower class, or, but even the lower class of the American population is in the top 10% of the entire world. You know, that we are rich just by living in the land that we are. And as a result of our affluence and our comfort and our just immeasurable pleasure, like we think we've done something because we skimmed off of the top this week and we've kept, you know, everything else to ourselves. We give and we give. And when we give, it's often out of a well-calculated equation. You know, if we go above and beyond uh, what we generally give, it's, we ask questions like, um, is it the right time? You know, do we have enough to spare? Um, we look at our resources and we ponder, well, if I do this, then. then um, and if it welches on our next three months or our year uh, plan that we have, or it removes some of the comforts and the security and the, and the joy that we have and the comforts and the pleasures of the world, we step back and say, really, is this the Lord's will? I mean, He wouldn't want me to really compromise these things. You know, maybe it's not God's will and you've worked through that and you pray and it may not be. But sometimes I believe we can spiritualize things like that and make it sound even more virtuous to hoard the things that God has given us in a selfish way. Now, that's, again, that's not everyone at all times, but dare I say that uh, maybe that's us sometimes, right? That it happens from time to time as we're assessing our generosity and giving our resources and that a more important question is not how will this affect me and my family inherently and what will we have to give up, but what happens to these people if we don't give? You know? That the question should be external and outward and focused toward the communion of the fellowship. Remember, it's the fellowship of the giving and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. It's uh, not necessarily what, what, what inherently the first question should be, how will this affect me and my family? Or, or let's just say me, how will this affect me? But how will this affect? What if no one gives? What will happen to the saints? You know, what if Jesus Christ would have said and calculated logically what would happen, you know, if he hadn't came? What if he would have said, these are my rights and these are my, I have this authority and these are my privileges and, these are the, and they were rightfully his? You know, every single one of them were his. Like, and he owned them and he had them and, and he's pure and he's holy and he's righteous and, and every bit he had every right to hang on to. But what will happen if I don't? What will happen to the nations, you know? Thus he comes to their aid. Thus the churches of Macedonia do as well. You know, They don't allow the affliction. They don't allow um, the extreme poverty, the poverty stricken upon them, in, uh, such as in the depths of the ocean, uh, more so than the common man. They don't allow that um, to restrain them from the privilege of being a blessing and coming to the aid of the church. Why? Because in some sense they see it as themselves, right? Love God and love man. Love your, love your neighbor. How? As yourself. As yourself. It's reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 28, I think, where it says, um, Husbands, love your wives as your own selves. You know, uh, that, that's the illustration that he gives. Right? What, what man ever hated his own body? And that you as a husband are to love your wife even as yourself. And that causes you to sacrifice things that you normally wouldn't for others because really there's this, this union, this communion. But then he goes on to say that that's the great mystery is not about marriage, it's about the church. 1 Corinthians 12, um, Paul says that that's the way the church is. It's a body. It's a community. You, you unify with Christ and you come together in His body and thus you are yourself. So when they ache, you ache. That's why when they rejoice, you can rejoice. And that's why when they weep, you can weep. 
Why? Because we are the same. We are one. We come together. Church is more than just an event. The community of the saints is more than just fellowship. That's why it's so grievous. You know, that so many churches just lay down arms immediately. You know why? Because for a lot of folks it is. It's just, it's just a gathering together. It's just an event. It's just a social gathering. And I'm telling you that the church, you know, the, the Bible is explicit. Christ Himself, He died for a body. And that when we come to Christ, we come to Christ in communion. Not only with Him, but with one another. And that extends to us a love that Christ has for them. And we love them even as ourselves because we are one. Well, there's this one fleshness about the body of Christ um, that is representative in marriage as, as well. That compels us um, to give and compels us to save them. And not in a spiritual way, but, but to meet their needs and to run to them and to give to them. And, um, and that's what stimulates the um, church. Um, but, but not only that. Not only do God's people live above the circumstances... Christians do not allow the circumstances to dictate our attitudes and our actions, right? That we are the, the, the perfect people to stand up and say that, um, you know, things about joy, purity, holiness, regardless of the, you know, darkness, rejoice, right? Like, we're, we're quick to say that. Like, it doesn't matter how dark it is out there, folks, today, rejoice. Like, we believe that. Regardless of the afflictions, don't compromise your morals or your morality. Regardless of torture, do not renounce Christ. Well, Paul stands here and says, regardless of the difficulty, Right, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of your extreme poverty, I, 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 am, I am edified and encouraged by the example of the Macedonians because they did not allow it to um, stand in the way of that singular uh, attribute of Christ, um, love. But that's what he is, and that's what you should be as well. And the circumstances should not withhold that or withstand in the face of that. Like, how do you do that, though, right? <laughs> Like, how in the world do you do that? How did the churches of Macedonia do that? I'll tell you how they did that. Verse number two. That in the great trial of affliction and abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. The answer is joy. It's joy. It was their joy and affliction that was the impetus of their sacrificial generosity. 2 Corinthians 7, 4 um, says something uh, similar. It says, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Can you imagine that? Affliction is coming and affliction is coming in America. And what do we do? Woe is me. You know what Paul did? Rejoice. <laughs> you know, like he had joy in tribulation. Um, he had joy in affliction. First Thessalonians 1, 6. And you, came Im you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction. And with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That just because affliction arises does not necessitate the forfeiture of your joy, church. And that joy will be instrumental in the generosity of the saints. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, you say, how do you do that? I'm going to give you a few verses here. Philippians 1, 18 verse, uh, through 21. What then? Only that in every way... Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Christian joy transcends circumstances because Christian joy is not rooted in circumstances. It's rooted in the eternal realities of Christ and His church and the truth of God's Word. Um, it's not temporal. Joy is rooted in the magnification particularly of Jesus Christ. This happens in so many different ways and circumstances. It's not defined um, monolithic. God is not monolithic in receiving glory. He receives glory not only in the positive praise of His people, but also in the affliction of the saints as it pushes them on to glory. He is magnified. On their part, He's blasphemed. On your part, He is magnified. And when the Macedonians realized that there was more glory of Jesus to enjoy on the path of generous sacrificial giving, their joy in Him severed the root of joy in money, of comfort or of pleasure, and they enjoyed the freedom of radical generosity. I mean, what a formula, right? Severe affliction plus deep poverty plus abounding joy equals abounding generosity. Abounding generosity. That they were so enamored by Christ and recognized that when Christ is magnified in my giving and me being like Christ and giving those things that are rightfully mine and sacrificing those things as Christ sacrificed for me that, that in my deep, extreme and even more extreme poverty, Christ is magnified and Christ is honored and, and as we invest in the church and love our brethren, therefore, um, we can rejoice in that. Right? Like that's where the joy came from. It came from grace. It just came from the grace that God had extended to them. And they recognized that they could exemplify the very character of Christ by doing this. So that in doing that, they had joy because Christ was magnified. It was magnified. Some, for us, some of us, it's hard to believe how Christ could be magnified in our infirmities. How Christ could be um, uh, glorified in our sickness or our afflictions. We try to avoid it at every cost. Paul says, listen, I'm great with that. Like if he wants to like, buy my life, or, but, but, but also buy my death, know this. I just praise God that he's being preached. God had imparted a taste of sweetness. The sweetness of the Son of God to these people. And you know what it did? It, it conquered the alluring aroma of money and safety. And it was replaced by a superior fragrance of knowing Christ as Lord. They were able to take this approach because grace was operative in their hearts. They were not bound by the shackles of comfort and pleasure. And they valued gospel principles and the magnification of the glory of Christ so much that it provoked them to put others before themselves. Um, why? Because even in putting others before themselves, Christ was magnified. He was ultimate. He was being glorified. Look, the world needs to see Christ magnified and glorified. How are they going to do that? Like if my poverty and my affliction abounds that, then, then let's do it. That was, his, that was his motto. That was his MO. You know, if I can preach the word of God and people saved, amen, because Christ is glorified. But if I have to be locked in prison and I have to suffer affliction and if extreme poverty come from, you know, the Macedonian church, if extreme poverty come, if Christ is magnified and glorified, then, then let's do it. Let's do it with smiles on our faces and joy in our hearts. Um, it was their joy. To suffer for His name's sake. Acts is overwhelming. It was their joy. Like I, I don't remember the exact um, verse, but it just, it, just, it, just, it enamors me. right? To read that after they were beaten, battered, and bruised, they rejoiced. Like, do you know that, brother? Do you know that joy, sister? You know, where you can say with just truth and honesty, 
I rejoice in my infirmities. I rejoice in affliction. Why? Because this is going to be a time where Jesus can magnify himself in me. There's a sense in which that it led to their lack. Uh, because they had to sacrifice something. But at the same time, they didn't lack anything. Because they prospered in their hearts. Their sacrifice of material and temporal things um, was the appropriation of the riches of Christ and the joy of Christ and the love of Christ and things that this world could and cannot ever buy. Try to save your life, you'll lose it. But lose your life, that's what he means. You'll save it. He'll save you. He'll extend to you glories and majesty and divine attributes that are out of and beyond this world. And that when you look into that person that's afflicted and you go into the hospital room or you see the persecution or you're railed and lied and slandered, um, you, can do, you can rejoice. And when you give and you give above and beyond, and, you know, you just, um, you just rejoice. Now, the fact that like, that wasn't yours anyway. right? Like, and, and if God wants me to have it back, He'll give it to me. Um, but even in giving, even in giving, it's not losing, right? I think it's, uh, we're not going to get there, but first, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6, but I, this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one of us, um, as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work that you don't lack. Like you, you think you're giving things up, but you're not giving. You're getting. You're getting the joy of Christ and the love of Christ, and you're, you're sowing seed into this world, and you're upbuilding kingdom like you're not giving it away you're investing it it's like seed going into the ground and only time will tell and maybe even eternity what the fruit of that will be so don't grip things so tight don't allow the world and possessions and material to control you so much that you think that when you give something out of the love of christ and the abundance and maybe even extreme poverty that you're losing anything we can sit around and soak and somber and mope and mop and all other things and throw a pity party. You know, like I'll give, I might, you know, kids are like that, but we are too, you know. Um, you know but um, we need to recognize when given in the appropriate spirit, man, those things abound not only to them, but also to you. You know, the churches at Macedonia, he praised God. Why? Because love was abounding. Spiritual grace was abounding. And it was evident, not only in the church, but to all the world, as Christ was being magnified. Listen, they gave out of their extreme poverty. You think, how could they do that? Like, they weren't the losers we are most days. We are the losers. And we are those that are lacking because we hang on to treasures. And we deny the riches of the glories of Christ by being controlled by material and possessions, more so than being controlled by the Spirit of God and the love of Christ and evident in a sacrificial spirit, you know? Doesn't that picture selfless freedom and liberty in Christ provoke us to give freely and earnestly this season? Does it make us jealous, you know, with a godly jealousy to have that type of community in Christ? To be so satisfied with the glory and the beauty and the majesty of our Savior that we experience the kind of abounding joy that enables us to live above all the circumstances, all the, all the affliction, and all of the extreme poverty. Do you want that kind of joy? It's rooted in communion with Christ. So much that we're enamored with the glory and beauty of Christ that it releases our insatiable grip upon everything that we once held dear. 
Because we realize, like, if we have Christ, we can live without that now, right? Why? Because I have Christ. I'm rich beyond measure. Everyone's afraid of, you know, and, that, and that's perfect for us this year, right? Like, every one of us is, in some measure, and maybe you today, are just so scared of 2020 and what 2021 will bring because of a pandemic, because of the uh, election, because of this, because of that. It has overwhelmingly stripped most people of their comfort and their security. It's created fear. It's created anxiety. It's created worry. Um, it's caused us to cling to the things that we have, hoard more up, build a fort around them, and buy ammo to guard that. You know, like, and I'm not, I'm not discouraging some of that. Like, I have, I have enough. I, I want to protect my own home as well, um, but I also don't want to be trigger happy and. And, and motivated by uh, fear, anxiety, and worry, right? Like, I want to be motivated by love and sacrifice, and I want to recognize that in the midst of affliction and extreme poverty, that I can still rejoice and have, have, have faith in Christ and exemplify and magnify His name um, um, with simplicity. And that's exactly what the other word means there, just very quickly. Um, they abounded poverty in the riches of their liberality. The riches, they had a driving force, a driving temperament, a driving um, uh, character about them um, that overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. You know, the deep poverty abounded to the abundance or the wealth or the riches of their liberality. Or in other words, in concert with their joy, fueled by the grace of God, their poverty abounded to wealth. That's it. You don't come up short. Like you come up with more. Right? But they abounded in wealth is what the text says. Well, what was the wealth? Was it material? Was it physical? Was it possessive in, in, in a temporal sense? The answer is no. Listen, um, their joy-filled affliction and poverty culminated in the wealth of their liberality. Um, you know, grace didn't multiply their pocketbooks. It didn't cultivate a, um, a, dry, it didn't cultivate a, a, a greater bank account. You know? and I'm not here to encourage that today. I'm not here to say that if you give and you give to the church and you, uh, you spend your time and you give to missionaries, like God's just going to you know, refill your bank account two times over. It actually does the opposite. That's what Paul's arguing here, right? Like, let's use logic and reason. If you have two apples and you give one away, how many apples do you have? You got one. Like, I, I'm not going like, to... That's, uh, uh, that's logic. That's reason. But at the same time... Um, they abounded in riches and wealth. Why? Because God returned to them um, what we've already argued, spiritual wealth. What was the wealth? The wealth was simplicity. It was liberality. Luke 12, 21 says, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the, the result. That's the, um, the consequences of the man who's just storing up barns and barns and bigger barns. That's his conclusion there. That he who lays up treasure for himself, he who is selfish, and just seeks the world, um, is, he's not rich. He's actually poor. He's the one that is poor of spirit. He's the one that is poor of the attributes of God. He's the one that we should, he's the one that should break our hearts, you know? The rich man all throughout the world um, who are just pursuing more and more and more riches. Like, and we could do a whole sermon on that. You know, just the suicide rate, the, the anxiety, the depression, um, the fear, the worry of those who have everything in the world but um, ultimately end up in killing themselves or incapacitating themselves on medications because they don't know how to deal with it. You think that these men would be the happiest, but no, these men are the poorest. These men are the most somber. These men are the most depressed. Why? Because they're poor of the Spirit of God. Why? Because they've invested themselves in treasures that die. 
and cannot do what only God can do. Um, so the wealth is liberality. The term here it literally can be translated simplicity. It speaks of an open, unreserved genuineness. Um, in the context of gen- giving, it speaks of generosity. Um, it speaks of a disposition um, that is singular. That's what the term means. It means simple or singular. Um, the simplicity of Christ. Um, it speaks of uh, contrast to duplicity. There's not ulterior motives. There's not two things I'm trying to do. I'm not a double-minded man. There's one thing. This one thing I want to do is magnify Christ. And by doing that, meet, the, or meet the, the needs of the saints by magnifying Christ. I'm not in it for myself. I'm not giving to get. Um, although I recognize that when I do give, God will abundantly pour out upon me blessing. But I'm not in it for that. I'm in it singularly, genuinely, just solely for the grace um, that God has extended to me. And we could go on and on in the passage, but we should probably stop there. But you can see that from that, um, they pour themselves into the people of God because of the grace that God has given them. That, there is, that the, the freedom of Christ is extended to those that are in Christ to, to let go of the grip of materialism, of possessions, of temporal wealth. Why? Because of the love that God has extended to us in Christ. You know, we come to this portion of the Christmas season and oftentimes our minds are spinning, our, 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 our hearts fall into our chest, there's so much anxiety and worry, we're trying to keep up with the Joneses, we're trying to keep up with the culture, and we get lost in uh, various other things. Listen, it doesn't have to be that hard. It's actually very simple. Paul says there's a wealth in simplicity, there's riches in simplicity, there's riches in the simplicity of Christ. That during this Christmas season, as you approach giving, whether it's to your children or whether it's within the church or whether it's outside in the world, I have no doubt you're giving. Just being in this church and knowing you, like you are some of the most gracious people God has ever extended to me. Some of you are just premier examples of the love of Christ. And I have grown just by being in your presence. And I praise God for you. Like I have learned so much pastoring this church. I, by nature, am not a giver. I die to myself, at least not in the sense that most people would think. You know, we grew up with little to nothing, and I have a natural tendency to hoard. You know, and think I'll use it later, or I'll do this, or I'll do that. And God has just been teaching me so much about His grace and about Christ, and um, just finding comfort and contentment in the fact that even if I'm without anything, like I have Christ, and I have Him, then I have everything. And there's, like, it's that simple, right? I simply... Not what are you giving, because Paul doesn't go through that. You know, he says they gave it to their ability and they gave beyond. He doesn't go through percentages. He doesn't say you have to give the same as the Joneses did. He doesn't argue for a, a New Testament, New Covenant tithe, you know, things like that. He says they gave of their own ability, they gave willingly, and they gave with uh, simplicity. They gave generously and they gave joyfully, even when it hurt themselves materially. Um, so I don't ask you, I, I don't encourage you this, this year to give. No doubt you're giving. I ask simply, in what spirit? Is it a love for wealth or a seeking, uh, self-seeking contentment, satisfaction, and security in what this world has to offer? Or has Christ by His Spirit given you a spirit and an attitude of grace-filled generosity so much that it rises above the circumstances because your joy is overflowing? Like it doesn't matter to you um, whether or not you get anything this year. Because you're going to get so much. 
when you give in the spirit of Christ. Christ got so much. Like he sacrificed so much, but can you imagine all that he got? He got people, boys, little boys, little girls, men, women, out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, stripped out of every generation, all throughout history, and all geographically. That he owns not only the cattle on all the and, 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 every, and a thousand hills, but he owns the wealth in every mind, but he owns the souls of mankind such that one day in Revelation chapter 5, they're going to gather around and they're going to honor him with the worship and the glory that is due his name. Like he gave it all away, but he gained so much the more. You know, he gained every nation, tribe, and tongue. Listen, I'm not encouraging you to give everything away today, but I am encouraging that if you did that, like, like don't hang on to that and don't weep over that. Weep, over, uh, rejoice in all of the all that Christ will give you in response. You know, joy is a is a is a is is not a commodity found in most people today. Not in most churches. You know, happiness and contentment and satisfaction is not something that is running rampant and being sold at Walmart or on Amazon. You can't pick it up. You know? It's in Christ and it's in Christ alone. And when you have Him, like the Christmas season is not, it's, it's truly more blessed to give than it is to receive. Has the sweetness of Christ so captivated your soul this season that the vain philosophies of this age has lost its grip on you and that's evident by the fact that whatever you have, you're willing to give it away and forfeit it for the sake of another. Not just for giving's sake, but because they truly have a need. And you love them more than you love those things. Why? Because they're Christ's and they're yours. You know? Why? Because you've become one with Him and with them. Especially your brother and sister in Christ. Does Christ so permeate our souls that we are seeking out ways to give? Are you? You know, uh, I hope that you are. You say, well, I just haven't had opportunity. They sought opportunity. They urged Paul, Paul, i got to get in on this. Like, look at you. You've got nothing. You're the poorest community all throughout the churches. No, you can't do that. Paul, this is our call. This is our commitment. This is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Like, you don't let us do this, and you're denying us who we are. And you're denying Christ what he deserves. Paul says, all right, it's yours then. Is that you? Are you seeking out ways to give? Are you seeking out ways to give of yourself? Are you seeking out ways to magnify Christ through that uniquely Christian grace and attitude of loving, willful, joyful, gracious giving? Why? Because that's what the cross teaches us. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glorious grace you've extended. God, we thank you for another Lord's Day. God, we thank you for the text. God, we thank you for the example of the churches in Macedonia. God, we thank you for the example of Christ. God, we thank you just for the willing um, love and example that he is to all of us. Father, we are so undeserving. God, I pray that during this season that you would help us to just think on Christ and the sweetness of communion with him, Father, and that would be the motivating factor. Um, that would provoke us to give to one another and to give to the Lord. Father, help us um, not to fall into the culture's um, attitude of the season. Father, which is overly evident on the news and many social media videos and, and all other sorts, Father. And we're willing to, to die over a game system or we're willing to fight and hurt our brother over you know, a cheap deal. 
God, um, may the worth and value not be in those things, but may the worth and value be in the glory of Christ and the souls of our neighbors, particularly the saints. God, help us to seek out opportunities just to give, Father, because it, um, it honors you, Father. And we won't, uh, well, we won't deny that um, we welcome the glories and the majesties of the divine attributes that you're going to grow and cultivate in us. Father, I'd be lying if I said I didn't want more joy and look forward to it. I didn't want more love and just glory in that. So, Father, um, we welcome that. We welcome the Christ-likeness. But we realize that um, much of us has to die for that to happen. So, Father, help us to kill and mortify the deeds of our flesh and the nature of, um, the nature of Damon. Father, who is often day self-willed and selfish and, and, um, and uh, Father, would you just enable us to be that for which you desire? Because we recognize without it, Father, um, we wouldn't be. It's totally grace. It's totally a gift. So help us to be totally gracious and totally gifting to others. In Jesus' name, amen.